Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is Terranauts. Today we've got something special for you. Ian Christie, the host of Terranauts, was the gala speaker at the recent Canadian Space Summit. His talk was titled, Launch Day. This is the live recording of that speech. As Ian puts it, Launch Day is a quintessentially Terranaut experience. And this is his Launch Day story. But as you'll hear, we want to hear about your launch day story. If we get enough stories, we'll put together a special podcast with those stories. Send your stories to podcast at spaceq.ca. Okay, let's listen in to Ian's story. I know you'll like it. Notes. I had notes here at one point. There we go. So yes, I started the podcast because I wanted to essentially celebrate people who were like me. Uh, people who had spent their career literally going to space without ever leaving the ground. And that's why we call it Terranauts, uh, both as an homage to the fact that, that we are space travelers, but the fact of the matter is we stay home while we do it. So today I want to talk about something that is a quintessentially Terranaut experience. Launch day. And point of fact, for at some point in your career, launch day is what makes you a Terranaut. Launch day is the bright line that divides before from after. Before launch, you have ideas, you have plans, you have designs. You have preparations. After launch, you have a payload. You have a spacecraft. You have a mission. Before launch, you have aspirations. After launch, you have operations. <laughs> now, the space industry is not different in having an event, uh, uh, a rollout, the big reveal, uh, you know, go live day. But in no other industry do you take your aspirations, strap them to what is effectively a bomb with a hole in one end, and blow them through the atmosphere and accelerate them to Mach 20. That is an experience that is unique to the space business. And so I want to celebrate that event tonight. Now, my first launch day was the 12th of November, 1995, almost exactly 24 years ago. It was the launch of STS-74. It was also Chris Hadfield's first flight, and the flight where the space shuttle, as Chris liked to say, he took a Canadian astronaut, took a Canadian arm, and took a piece of Russia and put it on the American space shuttle and flew it up to a Russian space station exactly five years after the Berlin Wall came down. It was quite a moment. But that's not the launch that I want to talk about tonight. 
I want to talk about a launch that occurred much later in my career at NEPTEC, STS-131 and, and TRIDAR. Now, 131 was nearly the end of the space shuttle program, and part of the reason I want to talk about it is because it was so different than STS-74. On STS-74, NEPTEC's contribution could best be described as enthusiastic amateurism. <laughs> we were enthusiastic, but I was the flight control team with all of the experience of having watched exactly two space shuttle missions from inside mission control and never having had any equipment on orbit. And frankly, it showed. <laughs> so we won't go into that. On STS-131, the STS-131 mission was built, designed, tested, and executed by a mission, uh, a flight control team that I would have stacked up against anybody's anywhere in the world, anytime. Most of them had at least 10 years experience in mission control. They had worked tens of missions and thousands of hours in mission control. They had been through every kind of review on at least four different pieces of equipment. Which for a company, uh, NEPTEC, I always used to say NEPTEC, had six first flights, six times we flew equipment that had never flown before. For a company in 22 years, for a company that never had more than 130 people working there, I think that was a pretty impressive achievement. This was a team that did most of that work. In fact, by the time we got to STS-131, with the, with the attrition that the shuttle program was feeling because it was ending, it could be argued that our mission control team had as much time, had as much experience as anybody in mission control at that point. And, and I, I dwell on that fact because it really mattered. I'm not sure that without that team we ever would have gotten to STS-131 and TRIDAR. Because TRIDAR was different, every other piece of equipment that we ever developed was developed to somebody else's specification. Either NASA or CSA needed a piece of equipment, we built it. TRIDAR was our idea. TRIDAR was our idea about how to solve the problem of autonomous rendezvous and docking. And, and it's a story that would fill a lot longer than a day, and, and frankly there are other people, some of whom are in the audience, would be better to tell that story. But let's just suffice it to say that because of the credibility of that mission control team, we had people who wanted us to give it a try and who believed that if they gave us the chance, we would make a success of it. And so after three years of pitching the concept, a year of multilateral, multinational negotiations with two different space agencies at the same time, and two years of design, build, delivery, verification, and testing, I found myself standing on a muggy pre-dawn morning with our accountant, Jeff, in Florida, watching in the foreground a very large digital clock that said nine minutes and was not moving, and in the distance, looking at the Space Shuttle Discovery under its little bright dome of lights near the horizon. 
So I guess there's a few things. I guess that's not a self-explanatory statement. Maybe I need to explain a few things. Why it was dark, why the clock wasn't moving, and why was I with our accountant? <laughs> so the second, the last one's the easiest one. One of the things we learned in being part of the shuttle program for 15 years is that if you ask the right people at the right time, you could get passes to go view the launch at the official viewing site. Now the interesting thing about these passes is that they come in units of busload. Because the number of people who can watch a launch is limited by the number of buses that can park nose to tail in the parking lot at the time of the launch. So if you ask the right people at the right time, you get a busload of launch tickets, which we did. So that meant that we had 52 people who were going to be very happy and some others who might not be. So we spent months deciding who to take to the launch, and it basically consisted of employees, important suppliers, friends, and family. And we all got to take a trip to Florida, where that bus duly picked us up at our hotel in Cocoa Beach at 2 a.m. and drove us to the launch site, where it deposited us and we spent three hours killing time waiting for the space shuttle launch. But by the time I'm talking about, it had been three hours. We had spent a lot of wasting time, but we were pretty sure we were going to get to see a shuttle launch. And, and I say that because going to a shuttle launch was a bit of an exercise in probabilities. <laughs> I like to say that I attended a lot more space shuttle launches than I saw. <laughs> because there were a lot that ended in me not actually seeing launch. The most memorable of these would have been STS-114, which NASA referred to as return to flight. It was the mission after the Columbia disaster. And because it attracted a lot of media attention, and, and because we were a fairly important part of the equipment that were needed to justify the return to flight, we attracted some of that attention. So, so I was going to watch that launch from the Media Village uh, at Kennedy Space Center. And I took along the contractor that we had hired to help us with public relations named Hugh. They gave us an office, well, that's charitable, calling it an office. It was basically large enough for both of us if we didn't exhale at the same time. And after we had, so we got there very early, went to the press briefings, did a few interviews. It was still a couple hours to launch. So I was lying on the floor trying to get some rest, and I was dozing. But in the office next to ours, I'm not sure who it was, but it was somebody that had managed to get a hold of the flight loops so they could listen to the chatter that was going on as they were preparing the shuttle. To this day, I do not know what I heard. But Hugh saw me levitate from the floor, grab the phone, call my wife and say, they scrubbed the launch, I'm coming home. Two minutes before NASA TV announced the same thing, he still maintains I have some kind of extrasensory perception. <laughs> What it really was, was a subconscious that was so tuned to listening to NASA loops that whatever I heard, I knew immediately it meant we were going to scrub. 
even though it took five minutes for that decision to work its way through the decision loop. But anyways, that was SDS-114. Back to SDS-131, and why are we standing in the dark watching a countdown clock that's not moving? Well, the answer to both of those questions is the space station. And so two things you need to know. First is that the way um, NASA did space station missions with the shuttle was they did something they called a ground-up rendezvous, which meant that from the moment the shuttle left the pad, it was on a trajectory to rendezvous with the space station. But in order to accomplish that, if you understand orbital mechanics, and that's certainly not a subject I'm going to go into tonight, in order to do that, you have to launch when the target is basically passing overhead, straight overhead. In most days, there would only be one opportunity to do that. And if that happened to be at 6.20 in the morning, that's when your launch window opened. It happened to be at 6.20 in the morning on this day, so that's when the launch window opened. The other thing that you need to know is that space shuttle countdowns were not continuous. I think in the Apollo days, they used a continuous countdown. They started at whatever time, and they took seconds off the clock, and if they, they might pause it if they ran into a problem they needed to resolve. But basically, when the clock ran out, you lit the candle and away you went. In the shuttle days, they instituted what they called programmed holds. And what they basically did was look in the countdown sequence and find those points in time where it would be a good idea to sort of stop and take stock, or where there was an operation like tanking that might take longer than you expected. And so they put a program hold in at that point, and they would run the clock down to that point and stop it, and not start it again until they were sure they were ready to go on. This became particularly important once they started launching to space station, because you had to hit that launch window. So you do, wanted to make sure there were no unprogrammed delays, because once you're outside the launch window, you were scrubbed. Now, T-9 was the last programmed hold. And it was a really important one, because at T-9, you didn't get past T-9 if the vehicle was not completely clean. If there were any anomalies that could not be resolved by the end of the T-9 hold, you were done. The other thing that had to be right was the weather. The bane of the existence of every person who ever watched a shuttle launch. See, because the problem was that the shuttle was not just a spaceship, it was an airplane. And so, as soon as it launched, it had to be able to turn around and land as an airplane at the Kennedy Space Center. So the weather when it launched had to support landing. Not only that, but the weather in Spain had to support landing because NASA had what they called alternate landing sites in Europe because if the shuttle got far enough downrange, it couldn't come back and it couldn't go around, so it would have to land in Europe. SDS-74, the first launch, the first day of SDS-74, was scrubbed at five minutes to go because the weather in Zaragoza, Spain, was too bad to support a landing. So you could have a really nice, fine day, like we did in Florida, and still end up having weather scrub the launch. So we knew we must be getting close because we knew when the launch window opened. 
And the clock was not moving. But then, thank you, sir. Dramatic pause for effect. Then the, uh, then the loudspeaker came on, and we heard the flight loop. And we heard the flight director pull the room, as they say, asking for a go to restart after the T-minus nine-minute hold. And we heard all of the ECOM go, GNC go, booster go, flight. And at the end of the poll, the flight director said, Capcom, tell the crew we're go to start the clock. And the clock started. Now, at that minute, in the launch viewing area, there's suddenly an outbreak of activity. Because all of the very nonchalant space shuttle launch watchers finally decided that if we're past T-minus nine, maybe I'll actually go out and find my seat. <laughs> so they all come in, everybody shuffles down, everybody moves around, checks the binoculars one last time, gets the camera out. The NASA security helicopter comes around with the door gunner in camouflage, disturbs all the birds, waiting birds in the river in front. And then it gets quiet. And then we get to three minutes. We get to two minutes. And then the space station appears. And this was the really magical thing about launching at dawn is that it's dark on the ground, but at the shuttle's attitude, it's daytime. So the sun reflects off the space station, or at the space station's altitude. So you can see it. Half an hour before dawn, half an hour after dusk, you can see the space station. And it comes up over behind our shoulders from the west horizon, up over top, and I am not making this up, at least in my mind I'm not. It went across the face of the full moon, <laughs> and it went from a little bright dot to a little black smudge, and I swear to God I could see the solar arrays. I will go to my grave saying, I saw the space station against the moon. And it goes down over the shuttle and into the dawn, and the clock hits 10, and the shuttle main engines start their ignition sequence, and the shuttle leans back, flips back to vertical, the solids light, and it goes off the pad. And watching from three kilometers away, the first thing you see is this huge horizontal shoot of smoke and steam that come out this, the blast channels. And then you see the light, and then you see the shuttle lift so slowly it's imperceptible. And for 15 seconds, you hear birds. Because <laughs> it takes that long for the sound to arrive. And when you, it arrives, you don't so much hear it as experience it as a full body sensation. It is sub-audible. You feel it in your chest as much as you hear it in your ears. The whole world vibrates to that frequency. And the shuttle lifts faster and faster until it is being pushed on a white column of smoke up into the air. And then the sun came up. And that column of smoke was lit from above by the man-made bright fire of the shuttle's main engines and from below by the light of the sun. And it was 
magic. And I turned to my friend Jeff, the accountant, and I said, Jeff, there are days when I really love my job. But that's actually a really important comment. Because I was there because it was my job. Because what I had done for a living had contributed in maybe a very small way to getting that spaceship on the pad and into orbit. I was not a spectator. I was a participant. And that made all the difference. So that is my talk. One of these. Yes, no? So, not working. Um, while we sort that out, that is my story of a launch day. That is what I would like is for the rest of you in the audience who have had a launch day, I guarantee you, you have stories. I know you have stories. Even if it's the story that you showed up and didn't get to see anything, you have got a story. <laughs> I want to hear about those stories. I would like you to write an email with your remembrances of a particular mission, whether it was your first or your 50th, but of a time when you, as a Terranaut, had a launch day. And what I will do, if we get enough of those, we'll make a Terranauts episode where we record lots of people talking about their launch day. Because the whole point of what we're trying to do here is to make the point that while the experience was entirely exceptional, I was not. I was a guy doing a job, and I got to participate in something that was wonderful and magical and amazing. But there are lots of people, many of you in the audience, who have done the same thing. And so what I want to do is tell those stories. I want people who have done it to remember it with joy, and I want people who have not had the chance to understand that it is not only, to understand that it is possible, and to understand that if they keep working at it, someday they will be able to look back on an exceptional experience that was just a part of their job. So write me your stories about launch day, and I look forward to telling them on Terranauts. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.